Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Klobis, your host for the channel. Today, we're talking with Holly Hurlbert about her biography of Katerina Corner, entitled Daughter of Venice, Katerina Corner, Queen of Cyprus, and Woman of the Renaissance. Holly, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Uh, okay, I am a professor at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale, Illinois. Uh, for those of you who don't know the geography of Illinois, that's about as far as you can go in Illinois away from Chicago, so the very <laughs> southern tip of Illinois. I've been there for 16 years. Uh, I teach a little bit of everything from women's history to early modern history to world history. Uh, and I'm interested, my research interests have to do with uh, Venice during the Renaissance and its uh, role in the larger Mediterranean. Ah, and how, uh, was it, and it was that research interest which led you to write this book? It was. Um, Katerina is, uh, was an interest of mine, her has been an interest of mine for a very long time. I first learned about her in graduate school. I took a seminar on women in uh, Renaissance art. Um, and I stumbled across the portrait of Katerina that is on the back cover of my book. Uh, and that led me to do some reading on her and, you know, sort of file her away as a, as a future interest that I followed up on uh, when I took on my second sort of large research project. What was it about her that drew your attention to her? Um, I think it was a couple of things. Uh, first of all, she's a, a royal woman, royal woman in a Republican city, which I thought was quite interesting. Uh, and second of all, uh, when the more I read about her, the more I sort of read the same thing over and over again, uh, which is that she was a pawn in larger Venetian geopolitics. Um, and, you know, that that conclusion, it, it set off alarm bells in my head because I thought, you know, I wonder if it's as simple as you know, she just went and did where uh, what people told her to do. And so um, once I got into the archive, I found pretty quickly that there there's a, a lot of documentation about her and there's a lot of evidence that she was considerably more than a pawn. Before we get 
a bit more into her and her reign, I was wondering if you could set a bit of the context for us, because when I was reading your book, I found it was very an interesting environment in which she both lived and governed as queen. Could you tell us a bit about the Mediterranean in the 15th century and what made her rule so unusual? Sure, absolutely. Um, there are, for all practical purposes, uh, four or five power players in the Eastern Mediterranean in the 15th century. Uh, and by Eastern Mediterranean, I mean essentially everything to the east of the Italian peninsula. So we're thinking about uh, the Greek islands. We're thinking about uh, the eastern coast of the Mediterranean. We're thinking about um, eastern North Africa. So in no particular order, there are three Italian city-states that are vying for uh, power in that area. And the reason why that area is so important, of course, is because it's the major center of uh, European trade at that time. That is to say, um, Italian city-states were getting quite wealthy by moving the goods that arrived at the end of the Silk Road uh, on across the Mediterranean and then up into various European markets in places like Germany and France um, and England. And so that was an incredibly lucrative uh, position to be in. So the city-states of Naples, Genoa, and Venice are all very much involved in that. So we have those three powers. Uh, and then we also have two um, Muslim powers, the Sultanate of Egypt and the emerging Ottoman Empire. And so these five groups are vying for influence. Uh, and by the time we get to the mid-15th century, really Genoa is beginning to fall um, fall back in this race a little bit. The Neapolitans are still making a good faith effort to try and uh, get as much control of that trade as they can, but increasingly the real challenge comes from the Ottoman Empire. Uh, the Ottomans conquer the city of Constantinople in 1453, and after that uh, begin to really assert themselves in the Mediterranean, and that poses all kinds of challenges, both political and economic, uh, for these Italian city-states. And not just the Italian city-states, of course, but Cyprus itself, which, as you describe, is this very unusual and even unique kingdom. Yeah, absolutely. The history of Cyprus, I at least find fascinating um, in that, you know, and, and if you think about where it's located, it's, it's less than 200 miles uh, off the coast of what is today modern-day Syria and Lebanon. Um, and so it, it is right in the middle of where all of this trade and political jockeying is going on. Um, since the time of the Crusades, the Kingdom of Cyprus had been controlled at least nominally by a crusader family called the Lusignan, who were from France. Uh, and they had sort of created this kingship for themselves in 12th and 13th century. Uh, they constantly struggled with being strong enough to maintain Cyprus. Uh, and so by the 14th and 15th centuries, for example, they'd lost the city of Famagusta, uh, and if you think about the map of modern Cyprus, Famagusta is there on the east coast, so it is strategically incredibly important. They'd lost that city to the Genoese, and in 1432, the entire island was essentially sacked by the Egyptian sultan, um, who then demanded an annual tribute or payment. And so uh, right in the middle of all this, we have the Lusignan monarchs who are constantly looking for allies because they know they can't go it alone. Uh, and this is how uh, Venice really gets involved, is that uh, the Lusignan king, Jean II, um, befriends not only the Venetian state, but individual very wealthy Venetians, including Katerina's father uh, and her uncle, Andrea. And 
this friendship, as you described, really is key to the marriage. And it was a marriage that, as was not uncommon for the time, Katerina had very little say, correct? That is absolutely correct, as far as I know. Um, you know, unfortunately, she's not the sort of, sort of historical source who's left behind a diary or memoirs. You know, today, March 14th, dad said I had to marry this random guy. <laughs> so, you know, sadly, we don't have that. What we do have is enough evidence to suggest that, indeed, dad and uncle Andrea sat down with the young king of Cyprus uh, named Jacques II and sort of hammered out a deal. Jacques II has a lot of debt. Um, he is not the legitimate heir to Cyprus. He has to fight a civil war with his sister, Charlotte, uh, which he wins. Uh, and then when he becomes monarch sort of officially of Cyprus in 1464, he has debt from that war. He has debt from previous Cypriot monarchs. Uh, and so he and uh, the Corner brothers make a deal. Um, the Corner brothers are tremendously wealthy. They are exactly the sort of merchant family that really benefited from Venice's power in the Mediterranean. They had all kinds of wealth. Uh, and so basically they agreed with uh, Jacques, the king of Cyprus, that they would reduce some of his debt if he agreed to marry Katerina. And this marriage, as you've already mentioned, takes place when she's at the tender age of 14. Yes. But she doesn't even meet Jacques until four years later. That's correct. Um, and one of the things that was most interesting for me in writing about this book is thinking about that time period between 1468, when her marriage by proxy takes place, and 1472, when she finally sets sail uh, for Cyprus. There's not a lot of, of documentary evidence about what goes on in her life in that time period. Uh, we know that um, some later sources say she uh, attended a school at a convent in Padua at this time. Uh, we know that her brother, who uh, was younger, but I think only nine or ten months younger, uh, had a humanist tutor at this time, which was very common for Venetian elite sons. Uh, and so one of the things I wonder is, is if Katerina didn't sit, on, sit in on some of those tutoring sessions um, precisely as a way to prepare her uh, for being the wife of a monarch. This is extremely unusual for Venetian women. Uh, who simply, you know, aren't being married off to to uh, monarchs, unlike, you know, some cases like in, in France or Spain, where women who would go on to be queen consorts knew that from a young age and had, you know, opportunities to be prepared. You mentioned the humanist tutoring. Were there other signs of a humanist influence, given the fact that this was during the Renaissance? Um, her father and her brother, as he grows up, are both, uh, consumers of the Venetian humanist culture. Um, and in her later life, Katerina is both the subject of and the dedicatee of a number of humanist poems. Alas, we don't know what her response to those were, but she certainly comes of age and then lives in a time period uh, where humanism was a dominant sort of a cultural language. Okay. Now, she travels to Cyprus and she... You, know, you officially, you know, goes through a formal ceremony to marry Jacques. And as you described, in less than two years, she undergoes this dramatic series of events where she becomes a mother and then a widow and then a queen. And I was wondering if you could kind of walk us through exactly what happened there and how it was that she went from being this teenaged uh, bride to being the ruler of the island. 
Well, Cyprus is very unstable in the 15th century. There's a previous civil war that I've already alluded to. Katerina's husband dies about five or six months after they first meet. Um, there's a long history of disease in Cyprus. It seems based on my reading of the chronicles that he probably contracted uh, malaria or some other um, disease, similar disease, and he died um, while Katerina was very pregnant. Um, and so about a month after his death, she has, she gives birth to her son and he's the future King Jacques III. Uh, and then about two months after that, there is a uh, attempted coup d'etat by a group of um, men, some of whom were Cypriots, some of whom were Neapolitan, some of whom were Spanish, who decided this was a very good idea or a good opportunity to put the king of Naples on the throne of Cyprus or to put his son on the throne of Cyprus. Uh, and Katerina and her infant are kidnapped during this time period. Um, and it's this time period that really the Venetians sort of step in and they begin a process that they will pursue through her entire um, reign as monarch, um, which is to help. And here I'm using scare quotes, which are not very effective uh, in a radio interview. <laughs> so the Venetians basically see this as an opportunity. First, they have to put down the coup because they cannot lose their influential position in Cyprus to their big rival, uh, the Neapolitans. So first they put down the coup. Second, they realize this is an opportunity to send in a lot of Venetian support staff uh, to help, help, and again, I'm scare quoting, uh, Katerina govern. You know, and at this point, she's an 18-year-old, she's a female, and the Venetians are worried both that her age and her gender will mean that she's a vulnerable monarch. Uh, and so at this point that in, in many of the previous treatments of Katerina as a historical figure, uh, historians will conclude that Venice took over Cyprus. You know, period, end of story. Uh, and what I found is that it's considerably more complicated than that. Now, if we're just looking at politics in terms of military and in terms of economic, yes, the Venetians come in in 1474 and they basically take away the power of the purse from Katerina, and they basically take away the power of the military. Um, but I think anybody who has closely studied how monarchies worked in late medieval and early modern society knows that that's only one side of the power coin. Uh, and so what Katerina does is that she then turns to the other side of the power coin, which I would say comes with royal tradition and ritual. Uh, and that she will use those ritual traditions, uh, things like entrances into cities, things like hunting, uh, things like the power of patronage, the ability to grant favors to her uh, citizens. She will use these things to the utmost. So even while Venice is controlling, you know, the, the fisc, she is still doing everything in her power to assert herself as the rightful monarch. And this is something the Venetians don't oppose or try to obstruct, but it's that sometimes tr work to enable. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the the records of the Council of Ten, uh, which is one of the major Venetian magistracies, we always find them instructing Katerina's uh, Venetian advisors that they should let it seem, and they always use the word seem, which I think is quite interesting, let it seem as though she's the monarch, right? So we definitely want to keep the peace. We don't want to enable any more attempted coup d'etats or civil wars. And the people really seem to like Katerina. So let's definitely keep her there. Let her do her royal ritual thing. And in the meantime, you know, we'll just get a sort of slide in here 
and look after the finances and keep an eye on the geopolitical situation. This refers back to the title you have for the book, which is The Daughter of Venice. And it's a very meaningful title because it gets to your understanding of Katerina and how you present her in the book, which is that, as you point out, we don't have a lot of her own ideas and words that we can refer to, but it seems that she's very accepting of this relationship and that she embraces this idea, excuse me, this identity of being a Venetian, even as the queen of Cyprus. Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the, the concept of daughter of Venice works two ways. Uh, initially, the Venetians decide to, you know, grant her this title, I think, under pressure from her future husband, Jacques. So they're engaged to be married, and they're married by proxy in 1468. And then he gets classic marriage cold feet, and he begins to look around and see if he can't find a better option someplace else. And so apparently, one of the things he wants the Venetians to do is essentially raise Katerina's status above that of just Venetian noblewoman. And so the idea is that she becomes in the same way that if he had married into the Neapolitan royal family, he would be bearing a royal daughter. He wants that status to be conferred on Katerina. Uh, and so starting in 1469 and 1470, we see Katerina begin to be referred to as the daughter of the Republic or the daughter of Venice. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think from Venetian understanding that this is, they have a very patriarchal, um, entirely typical for the time understanding of what that means, that this is our daughter, that she needs help, that she needs looking after, that she needs the guidance of a good, you know, masculine father figure. It's a little bit weird because, of course, her actual father is also part of this mix. Katerina understands this terminology, I think, very well and uses it to her advantage. Uh, and we do have, um, there's between 12 and 15 extant letters written by her that I discuss in the book. And in addition to that, we have lots of other references to letters um, in the governmental records that I've looked at. Uh, and she very well understands the term daughter of Venice and is going to use it to her advantage. And by that, I mean, she will write to Venice and say, okay, if I'm really your daughter, um, you owe me certain things. You owe me protection. You owe me a certain amount of respect. Uh, you, you know, so for her, it's very much a two-way street. And she will use this terminology in each and every bit of her correspondence until the day of her death. It, it's interesting. You raised a couple of very fascinating issues, one of which is the reflection of Venice's situation in the title. Because as you have described, Venice is not a monarchy. It's a republic. And yet it's a republic in a world in which so many of the polities are monarchies. Yes, absolutely. Um, and this is not the last time this, this sort of funky uh, construction daughter of Venice will be used. About 100 years later, a very famous Venetian noblewoman called Bianca Capello, who marries into the Medici family, writes home to Venice and says, hey, I want to be a daughter of Venice too. You know, so this ideology, it has, it has legs, it has feet. It will you know, sort of carry on. And then the other thing, of course, is, as you point out, the use of the word daughter, which implies a woman who is ultimately dependent upon older male figures. And it's a very interesting uh, embrace of that name, that, that designation, considering that 
as a queen, she is expected to answer to no one except God. Yes, it's complicated. Um, and I think it's complicated in a really, really interesting way that most previous scholars, because frankly, they've been interested in telling the story of the Venetian Empire rather than telling the story of Katerina. It's, it's, it's a messiness that they've overlooked. Uh, and so I was delighted to be able to sort of, you know, un unwind the messiness a little bit and think about it. What were some of the challenges she faced in addition to being a queen uh, in the Venetian embrace? Uh, were, was she able to navigate or did she have some difficulties navigating this political environment that she did? And what, to what degree was she accepted uh, by her subjects? All of the evidence that we have, which is not a great deal, but I think it's compelling, suggests that the subjects did support her. Uh, that when she appeared in public, when she made royal progresses, that there were huge crowds and they, you know, they cried out in the various languages of Cyprus, because, of course, Cyprus is this enormous polyglot where there are uh, Orthodox Greeks, where there are uh, Roman Catholics, where there are there's a, a small Armenian population, there's a small Muslim population. So it's a very interesting mix. Uh, I think that the people... The people accepted her and that, that mostly the people, and I think this tends to be true in a lot of places, just didn't want more civil war, right? You know, because civil war is disruptive on all kinds of levels. And so they were willing to tolerate Katerina. And I don't, there's, there's not a lot to say about what the people knew or thought about, about whether or not she is Katerina Lusignan, a continuation of this royal house that we've had for 300 years, or whether she's Katerina Veneta, which she sometimes gets called Catherine of Venice, um, and that she's, you know, she's from this usurping power. Um, she does face a number of struggles. I think the linguistic issue must have been one of them, uh, because even the most well-educated man or woman of this time period simply isn't going to speak all of the languages uh, that are represented in Cyprus. Um, she tries, the, the correspondence that we do have suggests that she tries very hard to keep abreast of the geopolitical situation. And so in one letter in 1475, for example, she's writing to the doge, uh, the ruler of Venice and saying, you know, I'm, 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 I'm writing you every time I get information on the Sultan of Egypt. I think he's okay with us right now. I think we're doing all right. Because of course, Egypt had conquered Cyprus in 1432 and technically controlled it. Um, and so there was always this possibility that that might become a problem and the Egyptian sultan might suddenly want to, um, you know, sort of swoop in. Uh, her letters also suggest, and this seems to be a truism, no matter who is in control of Cyprus, that money was a problem. Uh, money is a problem for the Lusignans the whole time they are monarchs. Money is a problem for the Venetians in Cyprus when they take over Cyprus. Nobody seems to make to be able to make Cyprus as a nation profitable. Uh, and so the letters that we do have from her, they do give us some indication that, that you know, she was grappling with these issues. And yet this reign works out very well for a decade and a half or 15 years for all the difficulties. She is queen. She does seem to be doing a, at the very least, a capable job as queen. What leads to this change where the Venetians decide in 1489 to depose her. Well, one thing that we should mention that I, I neglected to mention previously when you asked me about, you know, the struggles, I think probably her largest struggle is the fact, is the fact that her son dies almost a year after his first birthday. Um, and, you know, so that changes everything. 
Um, I think the Venetians probably leave her in place because, as we say, in terms of sort of filling the shoes of a monarch and doing the sort of monarchy things that, that, that kings and queens are expected to do, she was doing a reasonably good job. Um, and, you know, meanwhile, you have the Venetians in the background and they're managing the money uh, and they're, you know, keeping an eye on geopolitics. So I would say two things happened to change that um, beginning in about 1485, 1486. Uh, and one of that, one of the things that changes is um, Venice has been at peace with the Ottoman Empire since uh, their major war ended in 1479. But there's a little bit of saber rattling going on in 1485, 1486. The Venetians get a little bit worried. And so, uh, you know, obviously they're concerned that given how much of their economy is reliant on Mediterranean trade and how central Cyprus is to that Mediterranean trade, they're very worried that the Ottomans might one day, you know, just decide, yeah, we'd like that island. We'll take it, which, of course, eventually the Ottomans do um, in the 16th century. So that's one concern. The other concern they have, of course, comes back to this issue of Katerina as a female. Katerina as a still relatively young female. Katerina as a potentially marriageable female. Uh, and so rumors begin to reach Venice in the summer of 1488 that she might be shopping for a husband, and that in particular she's shopping in Naples. Uh, and that this is extremely alarming because, of course, if Katerina married a Neapolitan and produced an heir, and, you know, she's she's not 40 yet, this is still biologically possible, then there would be serious problems. Uh, and so in the fall of 1488, uh, the combination of geopolitics and gender politics uh, prompts Venice to send Katerina's brother, Giorgio, basically to guilt her out of her own, um, her own kingdom. And so Giorgio goes over and he's supposed to tell her that for the good of her fatherland, and of course, he invokes this father-daughter relationship that is, um, is so prominent in the title of my book. For the good of her fatherland, she is to give up her throne uh, and return to Cyprus, or return to Venice. Um, and I think quite unwillingly, she accepts this proposition uh, and returns to Venice in the spring of 1489. It really is a very unenviable situation that she's facing because if she says no, Basically, she risks, at the very least, losing Venice's support, and Venice really does seem to be the bulwark that's holding back the Egyptians, the Ottomans, potentially the Genoese, and, and, and the Neapolitans. And there's no guarantee that the marriage alliance that might be in the works will come to fruition and bring about, at the very least, a Neapolitan partnership, if not a Neapolitan domination. The other thing I would add to that is I think based on some of the things she does after she returns, I think the other the other sort of card that her brother plays has to do with the, the honor of the family name. You know, that if she, Katerina, turns her back on her fatherland, she's not only dishonoring that fatherland and probably inviting a war, she's dishonoring the family name. You know, the, the Corner are an incredibly powerful family. Her brother absolutely has ambitions to become Doge. And I, he is no doubt thinking, okay, on the one hand, if I bring home Katerina, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm bringing home this, this enormous, um, incredibly important and powerful and rich, potentially rich, uh, island kingdom. And, you know, won't all Venice love me and my family? If I fail to do that, you know, I'm going to be the goat for the rest of my political career. And so I think the family factor also plays a really crucial role. 
What happens to uh, Katerina after she is dethroned? On her way back to Venice. Um, actually, she, she faces quite a lot of misfortune. Um, one of the ships carrying her belongings sinks, uh, and she arrives in Venice. And I have often tried to imagine what that must have felt like and totally failed since sadly I'm not a monarch. Um, she begins almost immediately to write letters to the magistracies of Venice, um, making some demands, um, making some suggestions. Uh, and mutually, Venice and Katerina decide that she will um, take up residence at least part-time in the hill town of Oslo. And Oslo is, at that time, it's about a day's drive uh, from Venice. Um, now you can get there in about 45 minutes to an hour. Um, it's a beautiful hill town. It's tiny. Uh, and often people have thought that this was you know, this was kind of a, a, a gilded a gilded cage retirement. We're going to put Katerina over there on the hillside, and she's going to hang out with some painters and some humanists, and she's going to have parties, and won't this be great? And all of that happens. What people don't, don't realize, I think, or hadn't realized until my book, is that in 1489, Venice gives her Oslo. They don't just say, here, have a nice vacation home. They say, here, we want you to rule this city until your death. Uh, and she takes that very, very seriously. So in the same way that we see her doing everything in her power in Cyprus to be a monarch, you know, be all that she can be, uh, she's going to do that in Oslo. And so she's going to get involved with local issues, um, issues including local poverty, uh, disputes between farmers, and particularly an issue that was a really a very hot button topic in northern Italy at this time, which was the presence of Jewish moneylenders in cities. Uh, and this is very hotly debated at this time whether that should be allowed or whether Jewish moneylenders should be um, kicked out of cities. And so she weighs into this issue as well. Um, so she is, I think, she's, she's asserting her royal status in as many ways as she can. So she continues to do the things we talked about that gave her some status and authority in Cyprus. Uh, she continues to use political patronage to get her followers appointed to uh, offices. She arranges marriages for her followers. Uh, she does host parties. She does get involved in the humanist community there. She does uh, dabble in minor artistic patronage while she's also um, governing Oslo, sometimes from Oslo, sometimes from the city of Venice, and sometimes from the hunting lodge that she designs for herself called the Barco, uh, which is located about five, six miles um, from Oslo. And there she hunts uh, and, again, engages in these activities that are, you know, profoundly royal in nature. It seems as though she had more freedom in that respect to uh, assume this role of being the sovereign in this case of Oslo instead of Cyprus, but she had more uh, freedom to do that than she did when she was in Cyprus. Yes, because I think the stakes are much lower. Um, you know, Cyprus is strategically incredibly important to the Venetians. Oslo, they're not too worried about. Uh, you know, it's a tiny town. There's a thousand residents. Uh, ironically, right before the end of Katerina's life, Oslo plays a major role in the War of the League of Cambrai, this major war between Venice and, and literally everybody else uh, in Europe. Um, but at that point, Katerina, like everybody else, has been forced to retreat um, 
so I think it, it you know they they're willing to give her more freedom because the stakes are a lot lower. You mentioned the various roles that she assumed as a ruler, as a patron, and reading it, it really seemed that she was very focused on maintaining her dignity, not just as a woman, but as a monarch. It was as if she was saying that her uh, dethronement was not a uh, rejection of, 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 it was not a reflection of failure on her part, and that she was still maintaining this network and showing how successful she continued to be as a queen. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think that was conscious. I think that, that she absolutely positively thought, you can take away my kingdom, but you can't take away my royal identity. Um, there's an interesting, um, somewhat dated historically, uh, concept by a historian called Ernst Kantorowicz called the King's Two Bodies. And there's the idea that there's the mortal, the mortal physical person who fills the role of monarch. And then there's the sort of larger idea of monarch, and I think that she's tapping into, in addition to continuing to fill the role of monarch physically, she's tapping into that larger idea of what we expect monarchs to do and be, even though she is not physically a monarch anymore. And what's, you know, what's fascinating is there aren't a whole lot of ex-monarchs running around Europe at this time. Um, usually if you're a monarch, you die a monarch. Uh, in possession of your kingdom and that, you know, so she's, she's unusual in that respect, but yeah, it, it, she's absolutely determined to walk, walk the walk and talk the talk as long as she possibly can. One of the uh, images in the book that really reflected this, and this is something that we haven't really discussed, which is the degree to which this book is filled with uh, reproductions of paintings and artwork that are related to both her reign and her legacy is the it's at the uh, very beginning of chapter five and it's the uh, picture that you have reproduced of the miracle of the true cross at Ponte San Lorenzo by uh, Bellini and you uh, note that though the the figures are not you know clearly uh, designated in the painting that you know, the, the, it, you've been able to identify that it is Katerina and her ladies-in-waiting. And when I saw it, I was really struck by how it does seem to be a picture of a very regal woman, and not just in terms of her bearing, but in the fact that she still has a court of women around her and that she still uh, you know, not only embraces this identity, but seeks to make it known publicly in these very public events in this Republican uh, uh, environment. I, you know, it's fascinating that that painting has been the subject of a lot of studies, and I think we are far, far away from fully, truly understanding all of it, let alone the tiny portion of it that features Katerina. And I should say before I go any further um, that one of the greatest delights for me in this project has been that it is a truly interdisciplinary uh, project, that it has allowed me to um, think about art as historical evidence and also think about literature and philosophy as historical evidence. And I, I should say, this is sort of why I got into the Renaissance in the first place, is that as a college student, I took some history and I took some English and I took some art and I couldn't really decide what I wanted to major in. And then I took a class uh, on the Renaissance and I thought, hey, we're talking about all of those things uh, <laughs> and I will be a historian uh, with a minor in art history. Um, the other thing I should say is... Um, that it was an absolute pleasure to work with Yale University Press 
on this project. And I think they have done me tremendously proud uh, in the reproductions that you're referring to. So here I'd just like to give a little shout out to my editor there, uh, Jillian Malpass, who was, I think, an essential part of bringing this book together uh, in the way that it came together. Okay, now let's go back to uh, the Ponte San Lorenzo. Um, we don't know if that depiction ever took place, right? So we don't know if Katerina ever actually stood there uh, and witnessed this event. And and, and there's a, it's part of a series of paintings in which Bellini does this fabulous thing of folding in, you know, real settings. You can go and stand on that exact bridge today still. Uh, so real settings and folding in events that occurred across different time periods. Uh, and so, you know, he's, he's being fanciful, and I think that's great. But at the same time, we know that Katerina appeared in Venice. And we know that she had a retinue. And we even know, thanks to the chronicler Marine Sanudo, that she favored dark colors. Uh, and so she's wearing, a, a, you know, a dark colored dress. But it is, and, and, and again, this, this, this remarkable outfit that she's wearing is reproduced in a portrait that Gentile Bellini also paints of, of Katerina. And it's incredibly detailed. I've often sort of sat and looked at it and thought, how did you put that on? Uh, because it's got all these layers and bits and pearls everywhere. Um, and so even if the dress itself didn't exist, clearly Bellini thinks of Katerina as somebody royal, right? So she's been trying to project that message, and at least this artist has sort of taken on that message. And as uh, you, uh, one of the things that stands out, especially in the Bellini portrait, but you can also see in the San Lorenzo picture, is that among the things she's wearing is a crown. It's a teeny tiny little crown. Crown scholars will argue with you about whether that's a crown or what's called a coronet, you know, which is essentially a small crown. Um, the crown itself is super interesting, I think. Um, one of the other most common depictions of Katerina, which occur, mostly recur after her death, is a picture of her handing a crown, which, you know, you can call it a crown, you can call it a coronet, I don't care what you call it, it's a symbol of monarchy. Um, She's often depicted handing that piece of royal authority over to the Venetians. So there's a picture of her doing that on the ceiling of the Madre Concilio, the main governing space in the Doge's palace. There's a picture of her doing that on her throne. Uh, and so the fact that in both in Bellini's portrait and in the Ponte San Lorenzo image, she's wearing the crown. She's not giving it away. She's got it on her head. I think that... It, sends a very, very, again, the same message about her and her need to express royal authority. Now, I should say, we don't know either how she ended up in the Ponte San Lorenzo painting or who commissioned the portrait. And I have two theories on the portrait. Um, one is, and, I, you know, of course, this is the theory I prefer, um, is that she commissioned this for herself, which, of course, would be an ent entirely in keeping with royal identity. Right. You know, monarchs like paintings of themselves. Equally possible, I think, is that it was commissioned by her brother or a member of her family for the reasons that we've already discussed. Not only is she interested in maintaining and deploying her royal authority for her purposes, but her brother and her brother's sons are and will continue to be for generations interested in deploying her image and her memory for their own ambitions. And so I think it's equally likely that the portrait was the result of uh, a family expression of, hey, look, we're a royal family in Venice and we're the only one. 
And yet, they're not the only ones who have the story. And that's one of the other interesting things about your book is that you uh, reference throughout the book all of these posthumous works that are written or, or, or painted about Katerina and her reign as Queen of Cyprus. Why has she continued a, a, as this uh, as this source of of of, of interest? Why, why, why has she you know continued to you know maintain our attention? It, what is it about her in, in, in these subsequent depictions that people keep returning to about her and her reign as Queen of Cyprus? Well, I think it depends on who you know who's doing the remembering. Um, I've already mentioned why her family might be interested in, in reminding us that they have this royal relative. Um, I think the Venetians are interested in reminding us of this, particularly after they lose the city of Cyprus or the city, the island of Cyprus uh, in the 1570s as a result of yet another war with the Ottomans, is that they want to point back and say, see, these were our glory days. This was when we had this kingdom. And, and Katerina becomes great shorthand for that because of this myth of her willingly giving up the kingdom for the benefit of Venice. Um, when we get down to the 18th and 19th centuries, uh, I think Katerina's story is just a great story. Um, it's a great story for the 19th century that's interested in sort of melodrama and tragedy and romance. Uh, and so in the 19th century, uh, we get a lot of play of yet another myth involving Katerina, the idea that she became Queen of Cyprus because her husband fell hopelessly in love with a portrait of her. There is zero evidence that this actually happened, but it's, the story's been repeated over and over again because we love that, right? Where, as humans, we love the idea of, of you know, love at first sight and star-crossed love. Uh, and so this, you know, and, and, and so poets get very interested in Katerina, none more so than Robert Browning, who at the very end of his life actually buys a piece of property that used to be part of the property she lived on in Azalo. Fascinating. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Yes, uh, I have two projects that I'm working on now. One is a direct descendant of the Katerina project, and one is a little bit further afield. Um, one of the things that I learned from my first project uh, was to keep track of, of stuff that interests me. So um, one of the things that I've been working on as a historian my entire career is honing my, my I'm going to go ahead and call it my historical spider sense, right? Um, you know, the, the notion when you're reading and you're looking for material on a given source, when you run across something else, you know, and you think it's interesting and that light bulb goes off, write it down. Uh, and so one of the things that I was interested in is that before Katerina ever gets to Cyprus, uh, her husband uh, has had a series of relationships that resulted in children. And so he has handfuls of illegitimate children. In 1476, the Venetians kidnap these children, cart them off to, to the city of Padua and lock them up in a castle. Uh, and for a long time, I thought, OK, end of story. And it turns out that's not true, that in fact, these these boys, they grow up absolutely believing they are the rightful heirs to the kingdom of Cyprus, and they spend their adult life plotting first to get away from the Venetians and then second to get the kingdom of Cyprus back. Uh, and to me as a historian, this is interesting, again, because it's a great story, but also because it tells us, I think, a lot about both about the geopolitics of the time 
and about the pressures of maintaining an overseas empire in a time period where you know the, the Venetians don't have any of the technologies that allow the British, for example, to maintain an overseas empire in the 19th century. So that's one thing. The second thing I'm interested in um, also deals with the question of the Mediterranean sort of as a container or a, um, I can't come up with the word, uh, a place where cultures cross. Uh, and so the other project that I'm, I'm just now beginning to think about uh, involves the brother of the Ottoman Sultan, Bayezid. So in the Ottoman Empire, um, when a Sultan dies, as Sultan Mehmet the Conqueror did in 1481, uh, it, it was often that the, his remaining heirs would fight to the death to see who would become the Sultan. Uh, in this case, the fight is not to the death, and uh, Sultan Bayezid allows his younger brother, uh, Jem Sultan, to get away. Uh, and Jem first goes to France, uh, and then he ends up in Italy. Uh, and I, to me, this is fascinating. Again, a question of geopolitics, uh, because rather than thinking, oh, you know, scary Muslim, as we might expect, because, of course, there was a lot of Christian Muslim tension at this time, what Europeans, and particularly the papacy, decide is, we really want to get our hands on this guy. We're going to try to convert him. But even if he doesn't convert, we want to use him to launch an enormous crusade against the Ottoman Empire. Uh, and a lot of other things happen along the way. And so um, I'm going to continue to pursue my interest in the Mediterranean as a crucible. I knew the word would come to me eventually uh, as a crucible for not only for great stories like these, but for uh, cross-cultural contact. Those both sound like great projects, and I hope we can have you back to talk about them when you're finished with them. I'd be delighted. Uh, Holly Hurlbert, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you. You as well.